Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, the Southeast, the nation, the world, the internet. I'm ubiquitous. <laughs> I was on HBO last or Friday night even. Welcome. Uh, the phone number here, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We got to begin, unfortunately, here. Have a good time. Enjoy life. It's... Um Life is too short to, to, to get bogged down, to be discouraged, or um, you have to keep moving. You have to keep going. Put one foot in front of the other, smile, and just keep on rolling. You know, and uh, that's, that's what really is, this camp is about. That's Kobe Bryant in 2008. Uh, life is short, uh, and he has died with his daughter and a number of others on his helicopter. Uh, you know, for those, so I am, how old am I? I'm not 45. I'm 44. He's three years younger than me. Uh, so when I grew up in the 80s, just like with uh, Kobe Bryant, both of us uh, knew Michael Jordan. Everybody was a Bulls fan. Uh, and then one of the most controversial decisions in, uh, in in culture in the 90s was Kobe leaving high school, going to the NBA, had a profound change on the sport. It was a very big deal. And if you're my age or younger, you got to witness, uh, having seen Jordan, now you get to witness Kobe Bryant. And, and it, dude, was phenomenal. Just an incredible basketball player. Just as an aside, uh, Pete Buttigieg did a town hall with Fox News last night and talked about how uh, Kobe Bryant was a great person on the field and off the field uh, as opposed to um, the court. Uh, here's LeBron James uh, reflecting on Kobe Bryant. I got drafted. I still just admired him, you know, seeing what he was able to accomplish, winning championships, having, you know, being early in his career where, you know, he, he learned from the misses that he had against the series against Utah and he just used that as motivation and got better and better and better to him winning multiple championships and uh, continued to admire him throughout my high school rank and um, and then as competitors um, just seeing the work ethic um, the work ethic that he put into the game he had zero flaws offensively zero uh, you backed off of him he could shoot the three you pick you know you body him up a little bit he can go around you he can shoot the mid-range, he can post, he can make free throws. He has zero flaws offensively. And, um, you know, that's something that I admired as well, just being a, at a point where the defense will always be at bay, where they couldn't guard you at all offensively, where you just felt like you was just immortal offensively because of your skill set and your work ethic. Uh, we take it down to 2008 where we become the redeem, the redeem team. And it was a dream come true for me to be able to line up with, alongside of him um, just admiring him for so many years and him seeing him from afar and then being able to be in practices with him and, and you know, me watching and learning. Um, so, on. I mean, it's just, it's just too much. It's just too much. The story is just too much. It doesn't make sense. Um, and just to make a long story short, now I'm here in the Lakers uniform in Philadelphia, where he's from where I wanted the first first time I ever met him, gave me his shoes, he won All-Star Week. It's just, it's surreal. It doesn't make no sense, but the, the universe uh, just puts things in, in your life. And, and, and when you, I guess when you live in the right way or you just giving everything to whatever you're doing, um, things happen organically and it's not supposed to make sense, but it just happens. And, and sorry, and uh, 
I'm happy just to be in a, any conversation with Kobe Bean Bryant, one of the all-time greatest basketball players to ever play, one of the all-time greatest Lakers. The man got two jerseys hanging up in Staples Center. It's just, it's just crazy. It is. It's sad. Uh, he he leaves behind his wife and, and several of his children. His daughter died. And, you know, it, it is a big deal, and, and that's why I'm starting the show. And, again, if, if you're my age or younger, you, you get this more than – uh, older generations, I saw someone yesterday compare it to the death of Elvis Presley, and for a lot of people, it actually isn't. And if you're in in Southern California in particular, the Southern California does not have a lot of stuff that ties it together. I was in Los Angeles last week, and uh, the driver who was with me, who who picks me up every time I'm out there for HBO, who was talking about how it is. It's it's really just a a massive city, but it's divided into smaller areas, and and each area kind of has its unique culture. And and they, they, they he was saying the only two things that they have in common are the Dodgers and the Lakers. And he's right. And Kobe Bryant was was huge. And the 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 thing you need to understand here is that he lived his life from high school on in the public limelight. He did not do everything well. And there are things that could be said um, that are unkind, and, and some people are saying them. I saw a Washington Post reporter and others uh, rushing out to point out that he had been uh, accused at one point of, of sexual assault or rape, and uh, people were pushing those stories out. So, hey, don't forget about this side of him. Don't forget about this side of him. And you know what's remarkable there? I, I saw some people I know do this, and the reason this is the other reason I wanted to start today with the story one of the trends we're seeing it's and it's something i talked about uh on tv on friday night on hbo we are increasingly as a society willing on both sides uh, left and right to define each other by the worst thing we've done what i mean by that is nobody wants to show the other side any sort of grace and in not showing the other side any sort of grace, uh, we're not allowing people to grow up. We're not allowing people to evolve. We're not allowing people to improve. And the story of Kobe Bryant is a, of a deeply flawed person who literally grew, grew up in the limelight of celebrity, leaving high school, uh, becoming a man, uh, becoming one of the most famous people on the planet, and constantly felt the need to improve himself in life. And there were those, including in the media and others, who wanted to hold him back, and he overcame. He he overcame that struggle uh, in an improvement of character, ultimately becoming a great dad and husband and living his life that way and, and talking about the joys of fatherhood, the joys of having a daughter, uh, not feeling overwhelmed at a legacy of not having a son, but, but being very proud to actually have a daughter to carry on his legacy. Uh, his daughter, uh, who died with him, a phenomenal uh, youth basketball player. But, you know, I see this with myself. There are things I, I did uh, early on in my career when I thought it was just me and my friends and didn't appreciate the fact that there were people who paid attention to me, listened to me, thought what I said mattered. Uh, I, I thought I was just having a good time with my friends. Uh, the whole idea of, of being even semi-famous, um, it, being a, a quasi I, I mean, look, I was in L.A. Saturday flying back and getting recognized at the airport from being on uh, HBO Friday night. It, it is a surreal experience, by the way. 
Uh, I am I am not in a, a a financial league where I can fly private and, and things like that and and bubble myself in away from everyone else. I have literally been yelled out of the bathroom at Hartsville Jackson uh, Two Dead Mares International Airport while I was peeing. In, in fact, security at my office tells me I, I, I'm one of those people who goes into the stall at the airport now because I don't want people to see me because I have been yelled at. I, I've been yelled at at a Chick Fil A on Windy Hill Parkway by someone who was mad at me. They followed me again, followed me into the bathroom while I'm peeing, deciding to yell at me and and tell me they disagree with something. Uh, And it is bizarre to live that way. It really is. My kids no longer like to go with me to the mall. We were in Atlanta uh, at, at a shopping mall. And a woman started screaming and ran up towards me. We had gotten some death threats around that time. My kids were freaked out, absolutely freaked out. Turns out she was a huge fan. Uh, wanted to get a picture with me and, and with the kids who declined. Uh, and it, my kids haven't been to the mall with me since. They don't want to go. It, it's it's And if you have an experience that you, you don't understand and, and I'm at an insignificant level compared to someone uh, who is in the NBA, is a famous celebrity in his own right now beyond the NBA, who was constantly in the public eye and constantly had orders of magnitude, more people who were hoping he would fail. The thing that you learn, though, is that there are a lot of people who they have your back and give you out of boys and pat you on the back until you fail. And then they're happy to take ownership of that failure as well and ridicule you. I mean, it, it becomes very hard to figure out who your actual friends are. It does. And to see people come out of the woodwork since this news and, and say, oh, we've, we've got to talk about the bad side, too. You, you don't have to do that. It is a conscious choice on someone's part to decide to focus on the bad of someone else. It is a conscious choice to do it. And when you do it and you tie someone, dead or alive, to the bad thing they've done as opposed to uh, the story being that their constant quest for improvement, their constant quest to be a better person, you you cheapen everybody's life uh, because everyone, to some degree, wants to do that. Everyone wants to improve. You also send a signal to younger people that it's it's harder for them to improve. It's it's harder for them to to stand up. It's harder for them to move on from the bad things we've done. We see this now in in sports media all over the place, where you you get a kid who gets out of high school, gets into college, maybe he's headed off to the pros, and reporters go back and find the stuff he did on social media when he was 13, 14 years old. And 13, 14, the, 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 the change in maturity between 13 and 14 and 18 is significant. The change in maturity from 13, 14 and 21 is hugely significant. Uh, the change to 25, even greater. And, and we see this now constantly with sports uh, reporters. Uh, USA Today has done this now a couple of times, going back and finding that someone made a, a tweet they decided was was racist or, or offensive to the alphabet gang or some such. And uh, going after him in this way, and he, I mean, the kid's life is ruined. The, the, the great moment, the award, is tarnished because of something they did 10 years before, and the media doesn't want to show him any grace. The media wants to be hostile to him. And it's unfortunate to see that happening here with Kobe Bryant. And some people rushing out, the usual suspects rushing out to define him by the bad thing he may or may not have done. When the story here really is, look at the outpouring of grief for a man most of the people grieving never even met. But they saw him 
perform. And they saw him grow up. And they saw him go from being a boy to a man. And they saw him screw up along the way and apologize and move on and become more mature and grow up and become a part of his community and play a part in his community and give back to his community. And it wasn't the community from, from which he was born. It was the community that embraced him. And he was able to, in some ways, unite that community uh, beyond politics, beyond anything. He was able to just unite that community in a way that community had long decided that that it was it was divided. It, it wasn't a real community. It was all mashed together. And, and here comes this guy, and, and they're all rooting for him. They're all rooting for his team. And uh, that's the Kobe Bryant worth remembering, that the guy who grew up in the spotlight wasn't perfect, but was always in quest to, to improve. To everything, there's a season, a time to every purpose under heaven, to be born, a time to die, a time to plan, a time to pluck up that which was planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, a time of peace. I have seen travail, which God hath given to the sons of man to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. There's a time for everything. Life is short. Make the most of it. Kobe Bryant certainly did. <clears throat> it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. And I think I, I I can move on from from Kobe Bryant. I I, I do have to let, let me spend just a moment here on on uh, unity in the nation. It, it's it's very interesting that we are very divided as a nation on whether or not the president should be removed from office. Very united on the issue of. Uh, whether or not there should be witnesses at the trial. 70-some-odd percent of Americans believe there should be witnesses at the trial. Uh, less than 50% in the polling average think the president should be removed from office. I, I think they want to see more. I had this discussion with Bill Maher on Friday night on HBO, and of course that they, they want witnesses, witnesses, witnesses. And the reality is that the House Democrats could have called the witnesses. We'll get into the John Bolton story here in a little bit. His lawyer has pushed out some information, but it, it, it just it's amazing how... Uh, divided the country is on whether or not to remove the president. And it really does look like the polling from 2016, except for the fact that those who want to keep the president in office uh, in the polling average are slightly ahead of those who are not in in favor of keeping the president in office. Uh, but, ah, man, it, it's impeachment's going to go nowhere. As, as I have mentioned before, and this is broken record time for me, when two or three weeks, I really still think we're going to move on to other stuff. The coronavirus is going to be one of those things. And I feel like I should give you an update. There are now five known cases of the coronavirus in the United States. Uh, we have the one in Washington state. The second one was in Chicago. The third one was in Arizona. The fourth and fifth were in are in California. Uh, and now we know that a man in, in 
I think Toronto came back from Wuhan. Now, for those of you in Rio Linda, uh, Toronto is not part of the United States. It's part of Canada. It will soon be part of the United States if Donald Trump has his way. We got to get from there to get to Greenland for our invasion. We need to invade Canada first. Nonetheless, um, so the... um, the guy in Toronto apparently transmitted the virus to his wife, and that is important because there actually have not been a bunch of documented cases of people-to-people transfer that we knew for certain were people-to-people transfer. All of the people who had gotten sick, it appeared, had come straight from Wuhan, and we couldn't tell if it was people-to-people transmission or, or animal-to-people transmission. They're now saying it wasn't contrary to the initial reports about the coronavirus jumping from snakes. They think the coronavirus jumped from bats again. Uh, bats seem to be the culprit across the board for the hantavirus, for SARS, for this, and for all the other known coronaviruses to have come out of China, it appears to be bats. Bats were being sold at this exotic seafood market, even though bats aren't seafood. They were being sold there uh, and eaten as a delicacy, which I'm trying not to gag right now. Oh, Lord, help me. Y'all, I- I've reached that age in life as well where I took Benadryl last night, and I am an old man. It is still affecting me. I've taken caffeine pills this morning to try to get over the Benadryl. I am, I'm, I'm just... I'm. And now talking about bats and people eating bats, it's going to make me sick live here on air. We don't want to do that this morning. I don't want to lose my audience in one morning. But I'm so this apparently they sell all this exotic exotic food in this market, all this gross stuff. Gosh, I'm going to throw up talking about this. I got to move on. This is this is just going to gross me out. In in any event, uh, the coronavirus has now we got five cases in the United States. There are cases spreading all over the world. It is now uh, they're saying that the virus transmits itself uh, before signs appear. So if you've been to Orange County, California, you probably need to know that the coronavirus has been spreading. Well, they've got one case there. Now, let me give you the numbers. In in China, 2062, eight in Hong Kong, eight in Thailand, five in Macau, five in the United States, four in Japan, four in Malaysia, Four in Singapore, four in Taiwan, four in Australia, three in South Korea, three in France, two in Vietnam, one in Canada, one in Nepal. Canada is now up to two because the husband apparently transmitted it to his wife. But the the, the real story here is in China, 2062, and every that should have an asterisk next to it because every single person acknowledges that there's no way, given the rapid spread of this virus and how it's now spreading, that it's only 2062. Statistically speaking, it should be in the tens of thousands now in China. And in fact, uh, the Chinese are behaving like it's in the tens of thousands. How are they behaving? Well, for example, they've extended their Lunar New Year holiday uh, to help deal with the outbreak by keeping people home and out of the office. On top of that, they've stopped all rail and aviation and bus services to Hunan and now another uh, city in China as well because of uh, all of these issues. And that, listen, you do not quarantine an entire city of 12 million people because 500 people have this illness. You, you, you just don't do that. And yet China, when they had 500 people, they said were diagnosed with this illness, shut down this whole city. And in an additional city, there were less than 100 reported cases. I forget the name of it, but that city has 6 million people. And they shut that city down on just a few dozen reports, which means they wouldn't do that for a few dozen reports. 
which means the virus is spreading more rapidly than the Chinese want to admit, which is another problem with Chinese with with communist governments. Uh, they're in CYA mode before they're in damage control mode, and they let the damage get too far, and now it's spreading throughout China and the world, uh, and has made it to our shores. But our CDC is vastly more competent than the Chinese to be able to deal with these things. When we come back, oh, we got to get into this fascist nonsense from the left. It is Eric Erickson here. Okay, so this is exactly what I was talking about. This is perfect timing uh, to see this tweet from Chris Anderson. He used to be at Wired Magazine. He's now the CEO of a tech company. Let, let me read you uh, his tweet. Uh, China is not just the most likely place for new viruses to emerge, as they do every year with the flu, but also the best from a public health perspective. Say what you will about command and control economies, but they're unmatched at quarantine tactics and mobilizing disease response. They're unmatched at quarantine tactics and mobilizing disease response. That's actually not true. That is, that's hype, and it's not true. Now, what's the deal with it, and, and why are we in this situation with China? You should really watch it, and you should have an HBO subscription just because you get to see me on TV, but also uh, the Chernobyl documentary, or not documentary, miniseries. You can get it on uh, Apple now, iTunes, but you can get it on HBO. Um, I think they have it. If you're still into DVDs and Blu-ray, you can get it on that now as well. So the, the Chernobyl series... It really was fantastic. HBO has done so much so well. I'm afraid AT&T is going to completely screw it up. But um, it was a a, a mini-series docudrama, if you will, on what actually happened at Chernobyl. And, and one of the things you see is, is what also comes out of China on these issues is the communist authorities are scared to acknowledge that a mistake has been made. Because in communist ideology, these sorts of things don't happen. They happen in capitalist economies. Uh, they don't happen in communist societies where everything is command and control. And, you know, the doctors are supposed to be the best. Everybody's supposed to be the best. And so local authorities tend not to admit when there's a problem because it's not just their jobs on the line. It literally is their life on the line. They, these people could be killed. They could be disappeared, sent to re-education camps for failing the communist state. And so typically what happens is they go into CYA mode, that they cover themselves, they want to protect themselves uh, before they really get a handle on the response. And by then it becomes too late, particularly when you have a situation like this, a mass rapidly uh, transmitted disease. And so now, of course, these command and control societies have the authoritarian power to go out of their way and uh, lock people up, surround cities, shut those cities down, uh, and the like. And yes, a command control society has the ability to shut down an entire city and keep people from leaving and kill them if they try. But it's actually not a very good place to live uh, to prevent. Uh, and again, let, let me read this for you. China is not just the most likely place for new viruses to emerge as they do every year with the flu, but the best from a public health perspective. Now, I'm sure his argument is that because China has a billion people, uh, China is, is the most likely place for new viruses to emerge. But actually, India now has more people than China, slightly more people than China. And why isn't why doesn't this happen in India? 
Why doesn't it happen in India? I mean, in India, the the people are actually even in in worse condition. The people in in India are even in uh, poorer conditions, less sanitary situations. And yet you don't have these mass outbreaks of illness coming out of India like you do out of China. Why is that exactly if China is such a brilliant place from a public health perspective because of command and control economies? Things they don't want to answer, questions they don't want to answer. Um, because the communists, they're, they're well, they're not that good. Okay, I got to move on. I want to talk about this fascism of impeachment. I will do impeachment at the top of the next hour. There's actually a funny story at the next top hour, uh, a Georgia story I want to get to, but uh, we'll get to impeachment in the next hour, the John Bolton revelations right now, though. I I want to take you back to Friday night. Um, Can't play the audio because there's profanity, not on my part. I I said a dirty word, but it was after the, 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 after HBO had gone off the air. I, I was on real time with, with Bill Maher on Friday night. And I, 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 it just, I said BS. Something was BS. The, the impeachment stuff was BS. I, I called it BS and didn't use the letters. I used the word. Uh, that, that was it. Um, no, leave me alone. It, it, it was warranted, but it was only on YouTube. Okay. Uh, so on the Bill Maher show, his final monologue, and and so the way it works, if you're not familiar, and most of you probably don't watch the show, I realize it's not your cup of tea. It's not really my cup of tea. I, I've done it. Uh, what, this is my sixth time doing the show in the last couple of years. I was kind of blown away. Eddie Vedder, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. Oh my goodness. I love Pearl Jam. And Eddie Vedder was there and I was all fanboy and, and couldn't actually speak. It was, it was bad. Um, I, I know I wasn't going to introduce myself to him. I'd be like my daughter introducing herself to Taylor Swift. I would just cry and pass out and wet myself. It was, it was, it would have been terribly embarrassing. So I didn't do that. Um, I, I didn't even know he was there until after the show anyway, which was probably a good thing or I would have really had a bad experience. Uh, but in any event, so the way the show works is it is exactly an hour. It starts at 10 p.m. on the nose Eastern time ends at 11 p.m. on the nose. It, it is re- they call it real time because it is in real time. Uh, you never leave the set. Once you get on the set, you don't leave the set for that hour. Um, if you're desperate to run to the restroom, you actually have a there's a there's an a, a escape during certain interview segments where you can make a break for it, but they highly discourage it. Then you're there the whole time and you have a conversation. And I, I like the format in that there are typically only two to three topics and you talk a long time about them. And then Bill will oftentimes cut away for an interview or for something and come back to you. Well, because of the way the clock worked this time, he interviewed Megyn Kelly up front about cancel culture and the media and, and, and liberal bias in the press. She did very well. And then we had a long conversation and then he interviewed Margaret Newkirk. Margaret Newkirk is there, or Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid Newkirk is the head of PETA. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, he's a big PETA fan. I, I made sure to wear leather. Um, and then he did his little comedy new rules thing. Some of them were actually very, very, very funny. Uh, but then he did this closing monologue and, and you don't see a clock. You don't know what the time is. Um, and I was hoping we'd be able to come back to it. And, and I actually got lit up by some people that I didn't engage with him. And, and it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, the mic was turned off by then. I, I couldn't engage with him. I wasn't, I wasn't going to interrupt his show. It's his show. It's like when somebody comes here and tries to interrupt me. It, this is my show. It's not your show, uh, which reminds me, if you want to call in, you still can. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. But it's Bill's show, and, and his, it was his closing monologue, and his closing monologue on, on Donald Trump is not going to leave the White House, that he's a fascist, and he's 
he's not going to leave. And now we know that uh, Barack Obama has come out apparently behind closed doors and referred to Donald Trump as a fascist. And I'm hearing this from all sorts of people that Donald Trump is a fascist, a command and control state that harnesses corporate power. Um, and, you know, fascism is actually of the left. I realize that if you look it up on Wikipedia or the encyclopedia, they say it's a, it's a far right authoritarian ultra nationalism, but it's not really true here. And it's actually... You know, if fascism and Nazism are kissing cousins of the communists. Um, and it, the people who put it on the right side of the spectrum with Nazism are, are left-wing professors who sympathize with communism. And, and really, they're all kissing cousins. Let, let me just read you, though, some of this. Um, fascism is a form of authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society and of the economy. Fascists believe that liberal democracy is obsolete and regard the complete mobilization of society under a totalitarian one-party state as necessary to prepare a nation for armed conflict and to respond effectively to economic difficulties. Such a state is led by a strong leader, such as a dictator and a martial government composed of the members of the governing fascist party, to forge national unity and maintain a stable and ordered society. Fascism rejects assertions that violence is automatically negative in nature and views political violence, war, and imperialism as means that can achieve national rejuvenation. Fascists advocate a mixed economy with the principal goal of achieving autarky, national economic self-sufficiency through protectionist and interventionist economic policies, blah, 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 blah. Um, does that sound like Donald Trump to you? If it does, you got a problem. And I'm on this TV show on Friday night. They're all, they always, have fashion, they, they get upset with me for saying Bernie Sanders is a communist. No, he's a democratic socialist. And that's a different thing. He honeymooned in the Soviet Union and complained we have too many choices in deodorant. He defended bread lines in the Soviet Union. He's a communist, whether you want to say he's a communist or not. But you guys are, are all whipped up into this idea Donald Trump is a fascist. I'm sorry, but Donald Trump is going to stand for election in November and may very well lose. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. He's not a fascist. And and this is a, a, a product of people believing the worst about the other side. Donald Trump has broken so many people. So many people are broken by this guy. They, they, they cannot accept, they cannot acknowledge that they do not want to entertain the idea that maybe, just maybe, Donald Trump actually uh, isn't a fascist because it, it actually makes them feel better to think he's a fascist. And here's the reason why it makes them feel better to think he's a fascist. And please, please process this. It makes them feel better to believe he's a fascist because then they can believe that a majority of people are still with them and they just can't get rid of the guy. And what I mean by that is how well would these people who believe he's a fascist sleep at night if they believed that a majority of Americans or a, a plurality of Americans even were on the fascist team? See, they, they, they don't want to acknowledge, some of them will, some of them believe that, that Americans are propping up a fascist. But he's not because he's going to be held accountable by the voters. And, and has he engaged in protectionism? Has he engaged in this, this rah-rah America stuff? Yeah, he actually has. 
But just because that doesn't make him a, a fascist any more than it would have made uh, um, Franklin Roosevelt a fascist who engaged in economic protectionism for a time and rah-rah Americanism for a time, does it make him a fascist? I mean, Donald Trump can't get what he wants through government. If Donald Trump were a fascist in charge of a fascist government, we would have a wall from the Pacific to the Gulf of Mexico right now, and we don't. If Donald Trump were a fascist, Bill Maher would not have a TV show on HBO because HBO owned by AT&T would be shut down by the government. And so he couldn't say it. If Donald Trump were a fascist, Nancy Pelosi would not be Speaker of the House. If Donald Trump were a fascist, the Senate would not be uh, engaged in an impeachment trial right now. If Donald Trump were a fascist, the federal judges who issued nationwide injunctions on so many of his policies could not have done that. If Donald Trump were a fascist, you would not have Joe Biden leading the Democratic Party right now as, as its potential nominee because he has the best chance of picking off Donald Trump. If Donald Trump were a fascist, so much of the things that people see and do, they could not see and do, and so many of the things that they want that can't get done would get done, and so many of the things that are happening would not be able to happen. This is a product of believing the worst about the other side. It is a, a, a product of, of nightmare agendaism. It is, it is the same way in 2000. George W. Bush supporters came under the belief that Al Gore and Bill Clinton were not going to depart the White House, that the peaceful transition of power was over because Bush lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College. Uh, the Democrats believed the Supreme Court stole it. They thought it was an illegitimate election. And so people really believed that, that they weren't going to give up, that, that Clinton and Gore weren't going to leave the White House. And they did. And in 2009, Democrats came under this belief that the Republicans were not going to leave the White House. The Democrats believed that uh, the Republicans were going to stay in the White House, that uh, Dick Cheney was really the power behind the throne, and Dick Cheney was not going to let George W. Bush get in the limo and go. They were going to seal the doors, bar the doors. They were going to stay president. And the military was going to align with George Chipping McBush Hitler Halliburton. And they didn't. And 2017 got here, and and they tried to disrupt the Electoral College. They they tried to blame James Comey. They tried to blame Russia. They tried to be convinced that, that Donald Trump was an agent of the Russians. And Barack Obama wasn't going to leave. Barack Obama was not going to hand over. He was not going to participate in a peaceful transition of power. It wasn't going to happen. He couldn't do it. And yet he did. And now we're back to the left now saying that Donald Trump, if he loses in November, will do it. And think about the mythology that the left has, has propped up here, folks. I mean, Donald Trump is in a, in a very catch-22, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If Donald Trump wins, the, the left will have you believe that he won because he stole it, that, that there can be no legitimate uh, election for the president. I mean, we, we heard the, um, uh, what, what you mean, the, the Adam Schiff stuff. On the basis of this egregious misconduct... The House of Representatives returned two articles of impeachment against the president. First, charging that President Trump corruptly abused the powers of the presidency to solicit foreign interference in the upcoming presidential election for his personal political benefit. And second, that President Trump obstructed an impeachment inquiry into that abuse of power in order to cover up his misconduct. The House did not take this extraordinarily 
extraordinary step lightly. As we will discuss, impeachment exists for cases in which the conduct of the President rises beyond mere policies, disputes to be decided otherwise and without urgency at the ballot box. Instead, we are here today to consider a much more grave matter, and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election. For precisely this reason, the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box. See, see, this adding to the mythology. If the president wins, they're going to say that he stole the election. If the president loses, they're going to say he's not going to give up power. They have constructed a mythology in their head against the president of the United States. And in so doing, they've been convinced themselves he's a fascist. But here's the thing. When the president does, if he loses, if he loses this time or, or not, he'll be term limited and he'll leave. And when he does, they'll just not dwell on it. They'll, they'll never admit they were wrong. They'll never acknowledge that, yes, we're still a democracy. They'll never acknowledge it. They'll just move on from it. But it, it's that lingering, willful refusal to correct the record and admit they were wrong that continues the drip, drip, drip of erosion of civil discourse where ultimately they do conclude that those who voted for him were backing a fascist. And that undermines our democracy in the very way they claim Donald Trump undermines our democracy. We've got Georgia news that I, I do want to talk about uh, when we come back. Uh, also, we need to get into the embassy uh, attack in Iraq. Uh, rockets fired and, and direct impact on the American embassy in Baghdad. There are other news out there uh, as well. But right now, I, I just uh, I really, really want to spend just a moment and let you listen to this audio of Brian Stetler on reliable sources. Uh, I've been on his program a time or two. He is a nice guy, but dude is obsessed with Fox News. CNN has completely become obsessed with Fox News, and, and he in particular, you know, he started out being kind of an objective call BS on all sides in the media, and, and this is yet again someone else Donald Trump has broken, and Fox News has broken him. He, he's now at CNN where instead of serving as kind of a, a media uh, arbiter of, of the media behaving, he's now an apologist. For, he remind, He's kind of the Bob Baghdad Bob of CNN. If you recall him during the Gulf War, uh, Baghdad Bob was the guy who would say, no, no, the enemy is not here. We vanquished the enemy, as you see American tanks moving in the background uh, before he has to cut the news news press conference short and flee the country, or at least a, attempt to. Uh, and, and just listen to this montage from Grabian of Brian Stetler on CNN. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Reliable Sources. This hour, as the impeachment trial goes on, brand new polling from Fox News, plus Fox, Fox's Mark Levin, Fox News, the Fox Effect, Fox News, Fox News Channel, Fox's, Fox's from Fox, the Fox sure. Firewalls, the Fox Audience, and Fox News, yeah. but then Fox, Fox News, Fox, Fox News, Fox News, Fox News, Fox News, Fox News, live on Fox, for FoxNews.com, uh, Fox News, Fox Stars, and Fox News. I wanted to ask you about a brand new Fox News poll. We will see you back here on the program this time next week. <laughs> It's true, though. You listen, I, you know, as as I have said repeatedly, I am a fan of CNN. At least I, I used to be, and, and I still am. There are some great people who work there. There are some great journalists who work there. But dear God, Fox is living rent-free in their head. I mean, objectively, Fox is, if CNN is obsessed with Fox these days. And 
I it's unfortunate to me that they are because they they've gotten in a situation where they can't be straight about their own biases at CNN. If you listen to CNN, uh, they think that they are perfectly fair and accurate, uh, pay no attention to the the black hole taking away the Malaysian airline jet that disappeared. And the problem is that what CNN is doing now is it's, it's trying to become an MSNBC light. They've hired, for example, John Harwood, uh, who is a, a left-wing advocate uh, in the media. You can get a sense of, of the revelations of some of these CNN reporters in their Twitter feed. There are some very capable, fine journalists, uh, Glory Borger, Dana Bash, John King, uh, Jake Tapper, Will Blitzer, Anderson Cooper. I, I, they're they're all friends. I, I I I adore these people, and they work very hard. I think to try to try to fix their biases. And and I'm not going to convince you uh, that they're not biased because in in some cases some of the people at CNN are openly willing to admit they do have worldview biases against our side, uh, but they try to understand our side even if they disagree with it. There are some more fair than others. I will tell you this: when I was at CNN. I never, ever, except for maybe one time, was on a show where they wanted to talk about news generated from a conservative site. The news generated from left-wing sites repeatedly happened. There are absolute biases at CNN. The problem is that CNN has bought the idea that they're the last fair place in America, and they're not. And that has allowed Fox to live rent-free in their head. And, you know, you would think just how biased is the media actually, you would look at Fox News kicking all their butts in the ratings and think, hey, maybe we should do that. And yet none of them are even trying. When we come back, we got some Georgia news and some international news to bring you up to speed. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Phone lines uh, are open if you want to call in. You can also get me on social media pretty much anywhere at EW Erickson. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You should follow me on Instagram. I'm rather non-political on Instagram. Uh, but E.W. Erickson, uh, there you have it. Uh, three rockets struck the U.S. Embassy compound in Baghdad on Sunday. One person was injured. It was a minor injury. The person has since returned to duty. Uh, the State Department spokesperson, according to CNN, said Sunday evening that, quote, they were aware of reports of rockets landing in the international zone. In quote, they did not address the U.S. Embassy itself. Uh, they want the Iraqi government to protect everyone. Uh, there have been numerous rocket attacks on Baghdad's green zone where the embassies of the U.S. and other Western allies are. Uh, Iraq's been on a heightened state of alert since Soleimani. The State Department did not blame Tehran for the rocket strikes in the capital. Um, it, again, uh, one minor injury there, no, no major damage, uh, to the American embassy in Baghdad. Uh, this came after several weeks of relative calm. And in fact, the reality is if we're honest about it, uh, there still is a level of calm in Baghdad because in large part, uh, Soleimani's death uh, has been very disruptive to the Iranians and to the Iranian allies. Uh, it, it turns out that uh, killing Soleimani might actually have been a good thing. Just might have been. And uh, I actually think it was. Now, there was also an American soldier killed in Syria. That We don't have a lot of details on that situation. And there have been some other disruptions in the Middle East, but none of them have been on a grand scale. And, you know, American personnel, even those internally who were somewhat skeptical of the president and his attack, 
have been muttering under their breath that, you know, it, it's what they expected to happen has not happened. Now, it could still happen, and there are people out there in the intelligence community and the military thinking Iran is plotting something and something big. Uh, they want revenge still, not just those attacks, but uh, thus far, the Iranian-backed uh, groups in Iraq and Syria seem to be in disarray because Soleimani is not there, there to help them. And there are plenty of reports that Soleimani's successor in Iran is not nearly as proficient as Soleimani and not nearly as competent and capable as Soleimani. The guy you will recall, I think, uh, the guy that Soleimani wanted to replace him got killed in, in an attack in Syria uh, that the Israelis are accused of backing and, and preparing. And now Soleimani is dead. It has thrown the Iranian regime into some level of disarray. Uh, but still, there are some who think something worse could happen. Uh, we, we've got the, the death in Syria. We've got the embassy attack has happened. There have been a few other attacks in the Middle East, but relatively relatively calm over there, uh, all things being equal. Now, I want to move on to a Georgia story as we get into some Georgia stories. And, and I, I've got to, got to do a big impeachment update. I want to get to the John Bolton stuff. But this story, it actually hits close to home for me. I mean, literally a, a, a quarter mile away. And as we here in Georgia, and if you're listening from outside of Georgia, just, just excuse me for a minute on, on this tangent here with Georgia. There's a big story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about rural Georgia being upset with Governor Kemp's budget cuts. Now, you do need to understand the political angle of this story uh, and, and take some of it with a grain of salt, This the angst in rural Georgia over Brian Kemp. The reason you have to take it with a grain of salt and, and, and understand that there is some manufactured angst is because Kemp won the governor's mansion by mobilizing rural and ex-urban Georgia voters to go vote for him. And... So naturally, anything that might harm the relationship between rural Georgia and their governor is going to be played up by the press pretty tremendously. The governor has shown himself, just, just let me put this in perspective for you, he got elected in November of 2018. The governor has shown himself to be a very adept and capable politician, uh, more so than many people want to give the governor credit. He has done things and played cards very well. Look at the fetal heartbeat legislation. He he got Republicans, rallied them, got them to pass it. Uh, everyone said he would take a political hit for it, and he's more popular now than he was a year ago. Uh, the AJC popularity of, of Governor Kemp is, is at 54%, and that poll was decidedly skewed towards the Democrats. How do I know it was skewed to the Democrats? Because uh, Donald Trump won 48% of the vote in Georgia, and of the people that the AJC interviewed, Trump only won 41% of them. Hillary Clinton got 46 nationally. She got 46% of the polling. So in other words, uh, they, they clearly missed some Trump support there. They oversampled highly educated uh, people, which uh, that demographic tends to lean Democrat in the suburban Atlanta area. And, and still Kemp got 54%. I have seen plenty of private polling out there that Brian Kemp has a popularity approval of over 60%. And I believe those polls because I've seen the samples, I've seen the data, and I think they're right. Uh, I think that the governor has, is, is playing his cards well. 
So when media reports come along that Brian Kemp is is hurting his relationship with rural Georgia, you do need to understand that there is a relative amount of spin in the stories that uh, they're playing up this angle because it is an obvious angle to play up to generate controversy uh, because it's not just about going after the governor uh, for things he's done. It's about trying to find controversy and create controversy where there is none to generate some salacious headlines. And it's a pretty damn salacious headline that the governor who got elected on the backs of rural Georgia votes is betraying rural Georgia with massive budget cuts. And it's not necessarily so. Some of the things the governor's cutting uh, is some rural health care programs, and that's what's getting highlighted. And why is the governor cutting them? Turns out the governor's cutting them because there are federal matching funds available. The state doesn't need to pay the money. That's right. Uh, the transportation improvements, the infrastructure improvements, and, and the health care cuts the governor's making rural Georgia, the reason he's making the cuts is because there's matching federal funds that can be used to replace the state funds that can go elsewhere. So the budgets aren't actually going to get cut the way that there are headlines. There, there will be federal money that will come in to offset the cuts in state money. But you'd have a hard time processing that. It's buried in the final paragraphs of the of the salacious story. But th- there's a story uh, local to me. Now, if you're listening, wherever you're listening uh, around the state now, uh, we, we now cover pretty much the entire state. Uh, we got a couple more stations we're working to pick up. But there's a story. I'm in Macon uh, in, in the middle of the state. I, I broadcast from Macon. Uh, thanks to the miracle of the Internet, the show is, is routed then to my flagship station, WGAU in Athens. Uh, they are our flagship, uh, and I, in fact, I got to be in Athens uh, in March. I'm going to speak to the college Republicans at UGA. Uh, may have to do the show up in Athens that day and and just hang out in Athens that day. Uh, in any event, uh, so from there, it's transmitted all over the state. It, it and it comes back here to Macon, where I am, to to the local station here, and just up the street from me, not even a, a half mile from where I live. The Department of Transportation needed to expand turn lanes off my interstate exit. I I live just off Bass Road. Those of you who've traveled through Middle Georgia, you have the Bass Pro Shop. There's Bass Road. Now, interestingly enough, the road was named Bass Road before um, Bass, um, before Bass built its store there. The road was not named for the Bass Pro Shop. Um, But in any event, so there's a big uh, commercial development that has opened up. And so the Department of Transportation decided to expand the turn lanes. So it used to be one lane on the interstate on-ramps or interstate off-ramps. And if traffic backed up and you wanted to turn right, you couldn't turn right because you had to wait for all the traffic to flow up to the stoplight to clear a room for you to turn right. So they've added now an extended right turn lane at the exits at Bass Road. But they did something else. Bear with me. This isn't a making story. For those of you listening in, in somewhere else in the state, say, I can't believe he's talking about this story. Yes, this does affect you. Just bear with me here. What the Department of Transportation did now, you should know, in, in addition to stretching these lanes and, and adding these turn lanes, that the, the Department of Transportation plans to tear down the bridge. This is exit 172 on I-75. And they're planning to tear down the bridge and rebuild it to make it four lanes because traffic backs up. I kid you not, traffic can back up five miles on this road. 
because you've got a major charter school on the road. You've got a bunch of commercial uh, properties. You've got the exit to the interstate. If you're in North Macon, you got to come this way to get down to downtown Macon or go to Atlanta. So there's a lot of traffic on the road, and there's a hu- several huge residential communities, including the one I live in, off the road. So there's a ton of traffic. So they're going to expand the interstate. They're going to rebuild the bridge. They're going to add lanes. But they just added these turn lanes. But they did something else. They added crosswalks and crossing signs. You know the signs with the red hand or the, or the white little man to tell you you can walk. They added crosswalks and the signage to get the pedestrians safely across the on-ramps and across the bridge. There's a problem. Anybody want to guess what the problem is? No, you don't need to call us. No, no, just, just think, why would I be making a big deal of this story? Because, my friends, there are no sidewalks. Let, let's review. The Georgia, not the, not the county, not the municipality, the state, the state of Georgia, the Department of Transportation, at a time of budgetary cutbacks, on a bridge they intend to tear down and replace, they have added turn lanes, which were inarguably, indisputably necessary. But in addition, they've added raised barriers and crosswalks and pedestrian signs so that pedestrians can get safely around the area, and there are no sidewalks. There are none. You, you literally, I mean, this is like something out of like a, 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 a East, Eastern European communist dystopia in the 1980s. A, a bridge that were, do you know, so back in the 1930s in Louisiana, Huey P. Long was the governor of Louisiana, and he built the Sunshine Bridge. It was a famous bridge. Huey Long decided it, during the Great Depression he needed to put people to work. And for the longest time, this bridge, there are some fantastic pictures of it after it was built. It is a giant bridge over the Mississippi River, and it starts in a sugarcane field and it ends in a sugarcane field. There are no roads connecting this bridge, or there used to not be. The bridge was built before there was ever a highway to connect the bridge. It literally, this was a bridge in a field. The on-ramp and the off-ramp to this bridge were in a field. There was no way to get onto the bridge in a vehicle because there was no road to the bridge. It was just a bridge. Huey Long built a bridge to get people employed, to get federal funds from FDR to become a hero in the area. And they built this massive multi-lane bridge over the Mississippi River, and there was no highway. It was just a bridge. It is incredible. It was a testament to a populist government uh, trying to get people to work. And so here now on Bass Road in Macon, Georgia, the Department of Transportation has built sidewalk crossings, crosswalks, and, and poles and signage for pedestrians, and there are no sidewalks anywhere around. The, the sidewalk that they built dead ends on dirt on both sides. And the Department of Transportation, your Department of Transportation, wherever you live in the state of Georgia, your Department of Transportation spent your tax dollars to like a quarter million dollars, by the way, a quarter million dollars of Department of Transportation money was used to build a crosswalk at this interchange at a bridge they intend to tear down that does not have pedestrian traffic because there are no sidewalks anywhere around there. At a time, the governor is asking state agencies to make cutbacks and be more responsible about their spending. Now, why did the bureaucrats do it? Oh, this is perfect. Why did the bureaucrats do it? According to the bureaucrats, it is now their policy 
that when they expand interstates and when they expand off ramps and they do things like that, they also work to make it more pedestrian friendly. And one of the ways to make it more pedestrian friendly is to put in the the crosswalks and the signage for the pedestrians. And so they did just that. They they actually did. They, they wanted to make it easier for pedestrians because that's in their guidelines. And no one ever thought to th- stop and think, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that here considering there are no pedestrians. They just did it. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the Milton Friedman story. Milton Friedman uh, was driving through Europe. I think he was in France. And they saw a bunch of people digging ditches. Now, this is post-World War II. It's the 60s. It's the 70s. And he saw people digging ditches on the side of the road. And and uh, Milton Friedman commented to the person who was driving him, why don't they have bulldozers out here doing it? Why, why don't they have diggers out here doing it as opposed to men with shovels? And the person responded to him that, well, if they use men with shovels, those men have jobs. You... You use bulldozers and, and digging equipment, and you wouldn't have to hire as many people, so there would be people without work. At which point, F- Milton Freeman says, he commented to the person, well, why not give them all spoons and you could hire even more people to dig? That that very much sounds like what the Department of Transportation has done. On a bridge to be torn down, they've built sidewalks to nowhere to comply with guidance that spent half a, a quarter of a million dollars to do what? Build something they're going to have to tear down in a couple of years. What a waste. I got to get some WD-40 on my microphone boom. It is squeaky. Uh, <laughs> welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, when we put the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, here we go. Listen to this. Mention to, and what we have seen from this poll, 48% of the American people who have been spoken with <clears throat> say there is enough info at this point to make a judgment. Uh, enough info at this point to make a judgment. That, that is a plurality. People are making up their minds on impeachment. But uh, the Bolton allegation does throw a bit of a wrench into it. Uh, the, the Bolton allegation, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, John Bolton has a book coming out. And according to sources, according to sources, John Bolton's book will say the president held up aid to impeachment because uh, held up aid to Ukraine because he wanted an investigation of the Bidens. And now you got Mitt Romney coming out. Uh, This just happened a couple of minutes ago. Let me see if I can reroute the sound here. This is how quick it is. I didn't even have everything set up to be able to play this because it just hit the wires. Um, I've said for some time that I hope to be able to hear from John Bolton. I think with a story that came out uh, yesterday, it's increasingly apparent that it would be important to hear from John Bolton. Uh, I, I, of course, will make a final decision on witnesses after we've heard from not only the prosecution but also the defense. But I think at this stage it's pretty fair to say that uh, John Bolton has a uh, relevant uh, testimony to provide to those of us who are sitting in impartial justice. Do you, Senator, do you have that questions about whether and who saw the manuscript in the White House and whether or not some of the defense team might have already seen some of the stuff that's been in this book? Well, I, I presume that if uh, John Bolton is given the opportunity to testify, uh, that there'll be a lot of uh, discussion about who knew what, where, uh, and so forth. But at this stage, I, it would be conjecture to try and uh, that is Mitt Romney uh, talking about wanting to hear from John Bolton. And 
So the Bolton allegation, again, in his book, purportedly, we don't actually know, but the New York Times is reporting that according to Bolton's book, he will say the president did withhold aid to Ukraine because he wanted an investigation of the Bidens and the Democrats. Well, I mean, we, we kind of know this from the transcript of the president's phone call. Um, what's relevant here, though, is that this is another drip, drip, drip campaign to get witnesses. Now, here's the other relevant thing is the New York Times has reported stuff like this in the past and either had to walk it back altogether or had to retract parts of it. So we don't actually know. Now, the Bolton team, uh, just so you know, the Bolton team has come out this morning with a strong statement blasting the national security processes. Uh, how so? Well, uh, the Bolton team says it wasn't their leak that they submitted the manuscript several weeks ago to go through the security clearance process at the White House. If you worked for the president and you're going to write about what happened, you have to submit the transcript of the book to the White House national security team to vet it to make sure you're not accidentally giving away classified information. And they said that the book is continuing to go through the process. They haven't heard back from the White House. And now suddenly uh, something from the book has leaked and they're blaming the national security apparatus within the White House. This is a key here. I'm telling you guys, this is not a good moment for the Democrats and they need to be super careful about doing this. Why? Well, over to you, Admiral Atbar. It's a trap. That's right. It's a trap. I'm telling you, this is John Bolton setting up the Democrats. John Bolton is going to be the hero for the Republicans. It's a trap. John Bolton is going to be the guy who the Democrats insist they must have testify. John Bolton is the guy that the Democrats insist need to show up. John Bolton is the guy Mitt Romney is now saying we need to hear from. John Bolton is the guy that only need four Republicans. And you're going to have four Republicans come out and say, by God, we need to hear from John Bolton. None of these people had direct contact with the president of the United States. They're all based on what John Bolton said. We need to hear from John Bolton. And so they're going to get John Bolton. And it's a trap. he's going to save the president of the United States from the Democrats and blow up the Democratic narrative. That, that is that's what I'm thinking more. Let me explain this when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson show the phone number. If you want to call in and be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me today. So the more on the boldest stuff, you should know this is happening right now. Senate Republicans have canceled their morning press conference where they were going to discuss impeachment. They don't want to answer questions about Bolton. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I do have to say, though, that we've now seen part of the president's team's opening statements. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the prevailing consensus in the media was that the Democrats did a bang-up job. In fact, they're all in love with with Adam Schiff. Let, let me play this. is from uh, a montage put together, I think, by Grabian Service. We used to help kind of get the, the relevant audio clips for you every day. But just listen to the fawning of the media over Adam Schiff. What did you think of the presentation by the lead house manager, Adam Schiff? I thought it was dazzling. By most accounts, it was a virtuoso performance that drew praise from all sides yesterday. I thought this was the most compelling case 
for removal from office of this president I had heard in all these months because it was real and it was powerful and it was important. He was speaking not just to the 100 people in the room, he was speaking to 100 years in the future. Mm. This is a speech that kids are going to be given in 2060 at, you know, at university projects and things like that. Adam Schiff did an incredible yeah. job. Mm -hmm. um, this is how you do it. You know, this, uh, this is really a I am Spartacus moment. It was a very coherent, cohesive narrative. A very, very powerful and forceful speech. I mean, his mastery of this material um, is, is, is really formidable. And he invoked the founding fathers in their words a lot. Schiff quoted Hamilton so many times today, he was nominated for five Tony Awards. <laughs> but I think he did something else. And I think our, our friend John Meacham would, would call it calling on our better angels. This was a speech really aimed at the better angels. I have heard from a number of Republicans who've been impressed by Schiff's mastery of this material and his ability to weave it all together. I thought the way he wove through uh, both the facts of the case and the historical context was really remarkable. It was a stunning recitation of the facts that weave together constitutional framing, American history, and Donald Trump's laundry list of abuses of power and obstruction of Congress. And obstruction of Congress. You, you know, so you've got the, the Adam Schiff, uh, the glowing media response to Adam Schiff, but and now the Democrats have had their turn, and it turns out that there are a lot of people who thought it was pretty good. I mean, here, listen to MSNBC on, on the White House response. But what was resonant, and I think what we're going to continue to hear, was the argument that we're now so close to an election, it's not worth continuing to rock the boat on this. I heard that from a number of Republican senators who said, look, if you're really uh, troubled by what the president did here, then vote against him. But let's not do something that no other Senate has ever done and remove him for this. I think that is the politically resonant takeaway here. And then I'll just share one other thing. I think um, regardless of how short or perhaps how incomplete the presentation was from the White House lawyers today, it was enough to shake loose some Republicans who'd been uh, at least uh, publicly neutral on the question of witnesses now coming out and saying, you know what, I'm leaning against it or I'm very much against it. I'm thinking of Joni Ertz, the Republican senator from Iowa who could be in a potentially tough re-election who came out and said that the White House lawyers in their two hours destroyed the argument of the Democratic House managers and now she's leaning against calling witnesses. I don't think anybody had her on the short list, but she is somebody who had been at least publicly neutral on that question. Now moving aside, this presentation from the White House uh, lawyers here was good enough, at least, for some Republican senators to say, yep, that's raised enough questions or sown enough doubt. I don't need to go there on the witness question any longer. And here's Ross Garber, CNN's legal analyst. I mean, this is, I think, a bit of a different discussion than we were expecting to have today. I mean, this is actually a remarkably uh, substantive discussion that we're all having in a way because the president's team, I think, actually did go through a lot of the facts. You may not agree with the interpretation of them. You may not agree with them. But it was a pretty it was a substantive presentation of the facts. Substantive presentation of the facts. And Chris Murphy, not exactly a fan of the president. Well, I thought the uh, president's lawyers did as an effective a job as possible in presenting their client's case. Uh, I thought their tone was uh, good. It was uh, respectful. I hope it continues into Monday and Tuesday. Uh, they spent a lot of time talking about whether or not the Ukrainians knew uh, that the funding was on hold throughout the summer. I'm not sure the utility of spending so much time making that point. Well, yeah, OK, but I want to play one more audio clip for you here. 
This is Zoe Lofgren, who is a Democrat from the Silicon Valley area who went on with Jake Tapper. And just listen to her words very closely, and then we'll discuss all of these things together. Congresswoman, you, you told senators this week, quote, don't surrender to the president's stonewalling, unquote. Right. But what do you say to those who say that's what exactly what the House Democrats did by not going to court to try to force subpoenas and force witnesses? We did go to court, as you know. Um, but you didn't pursue it in court. You ultimately, ultimately withdrew the cases and we went We realized to the we had the evidence we were going to get uh, and that it was sufficient uh, to prove our case. But didn't you surrender to the president stonewalling in that well, sense? Well, I guess in that sense we did, because if we had waited for three or four years, the election would be over. Uh, the, the issue would be almost moot. If he is uh, committing a high crime and misdemeanor now and continuing to do it, uh, we need to act. Now, um, the, the McGahn um, subpoena we subpoenaed him last April, and we're not going to get an answer on that probably till next year. But why? That, that, that's, that's smoke and mirrors on Zolofgren's part. The House abandoned their effort to expedite the testimony. They actually won. They, they, they won. The, 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 House, the, the House was able to expedite the situation, and then they passed the impeachment articles, and the judge said, well, this doesn't appear to be impeachment-related anymore. Since you've gone on and passed the article, so we're not going to continue the expedition, uh, the expedited process. And she totally obfuscated on that point. And, and to be fair to Jake Tapper later, he, he called her on that one. But if you're concerned about John Bolton, consider the House of Representatives could have tried to call him. They could have, but they didn't want to. They, they didn't want to call Bolton. They didn't want to call Mulvaney. They didn't want to call vote. They didn't want to call any of these people in the formation of the Articles of Impeachment. And, and their excuse continues to be, well, the court process, it would have gone on so long, except we know the court process wouldn't have gone long because of the very Don, uh, Don McGahn case she's citing. She and the House Democrats were able to get a judge to speed it up, but then they went off and passed Articles of Impeachment without the McCann testimony, and the judge said, well, this must no longer be related to impeachment. We can slow it back down again. That's a fact. Facts are facts. Truth is truth. That's the reality. The House Democrats chose not to call John Bolton. And here's my theory. Beyond the Admiral Akbar, it's a trap soundbite. I think John Bolton wants to be the hero. I, I have no basis for this other than knowing something about John Bolton. Uh, and I strongly, strongly believe that John Bolton very much wants to be the guy who comes in and shows the Democrats that, in fact, they have been played. That he wants to, to be the guy who comes in and says, you know what, all that stuff you've heard, those selected leaks, it's not true. All that stuff about believing this was a drug deal, here's what here's the proper context. All that stuff about me thinking what the president did was wrong, here's the context. 
and in so doing shows himself to be loyal to the president. In so doing shows himself to be standing up for the president. In so doing shows himself to be the guy who saves the president from impeachment. And in so doing reestablishes himself in the good graces of the right of the people who like Donald Trump. I really think it is a trap. I, I really think that John Bolton, see, the House could have done this. I, you know, I used to be a lawyer. Back, back in the day, I was, I was a terrible lawyer. Um, I didn't like practice. I liked the transactional aspect of it. And I was very good at the transactional aspect of it. Even in the discovery process uh, for litigation, I was very good at discovery. But I just hated to go to court. I, I'm I'm not a very good extroverted person. I don't like to go to court. I'm not comfortable uh, in a crowd like that. Um, and I, you know, I can speak on a stage with a thousand people staring at me, and the lights are in my eyes, and I can't see them, and I'm okay with it. I've spoken to a crowd of I think uh, the largest crowd I've ever spoken to was about five six thousand people, and I'm okay with that. It's I, I've preached in front of large crowds. I I, I very much like to preach. I would rather preach than give political speeches. It, it, it's the small, it's the small courtroom setting. It's the small setting where I'm not very comfortable. Uh, I can do this because I mean I, I got a camera in front of me, but I got a microphone. I'm not even looking at the camera. It's just me in here by myself talking to you guys. Um, and and it's 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 when the spotlight comes on and people start talking and and eh, in any event, um, that's a tangent on the Polden point here. John Bolton should never be brought to the stand. When I was a lawyer, and this is where I was going with a tangent, when I was a lawyer, you didn't bring someone to court to testify unless you had deposed them first. You didn't bring someone to court and start asking them questions you didn't already know the answer to. I mean, it's kind of uh, law school 101. You do not go present a case in court unless you have all the answers up front. You do not present a case in court where you, you march into court and you don't know what the person's going to say. When you go to court, your side and the other side both have the same facts, both have the same documents, both have the same witness list, both know what the witnesses are going to say, and you take the facts and you look at them differently. And your job as one lawyer is to downplay part of the facts and, and, and amplify another set of facts. The other side wants to downplay what you amplified and, and amplify what you tried to downplay to build a narrative for the jury or for the judge to show a grievance. But both sides going in know all the documents that are going to be presented. There are no surprises in a courtroom. Contrary to what you see in TV, there are no surprises in a courtroom. Both sides know the documents to be entered. Both sides know the witnesses to be called. Both sides know what those witnesses are going to say. And they both prepared a response for what the witnesses are going to say. You don't know that with John Bolton. Had the House bothered to call John Bolton to testify, had the House bothered to do what they should have done, they would not be surprised. And, and I, I think Bolton is taking advantage of the situation. Uh, two more clips for you. This is Terry Moran, and, and this is why it's relevant here, because 
None of the people who, and by the way, the House impeachment managers have shown clips. They've shown lots of clips uh, from the video depositions of these people. It's not like the Senate hasn't seen the witnesses. They have in these opening statements. They've heard selected excerpts designed to to convince them something was true. What the president's lawyers have pointed out is, is none of the people who testified have actually talked directly to the president of the United States, except for Gordon Sunland. And Gordon Sunland said there was no quid pro quo, and the president made clear there was no quid pro quo, and the president made clear this was about corruption in general. So here's ABC's Terry Moran on this. You know, it, it, looking at it, it is a classic circumstantial evidence case, right? The, the, the Democrats come and they, they make a, a very meticulous, well-organized and strong narrative argument uh, that requires a leap to the conclusion that they did uh, in their arguments. That if you look at these evidence, at all this evidence around President Trump, he did this he did this and it warrants removal from office and the republicans like any defense lawyer in trials across the country every single day stand up and say where's the direct evidence that you have to make that conclusion you have to make that leap and that does raise the question you know was it the right choice at the end of the day for the democrats to decide to go with this evidence go with the impeachment you have rather than fight as they're now asking the Senate to do, for the people who could say, I was in the room, President Trump turned to me and said that money's not going to Ukraine unless they go after the Biden. A circumstantial case where now they've got to ask the Senate to do their job. Here's Nancy Pelosi. She was on, I think it was George Stephanopoulos' show yesterday. It's about a fair trial. They take an oath uh, to uh, take have a fair trial, and we think that would be with witnesses and documentation. So that dynamic has now the ball is in their court to either do that or pay a price for not doing it. Y'all, I got to tell you, I've been through trials. You know, I I said I was a bad lawyer. I I didn't like being a lawyer. I, I, I... I was glad to get the law degree. A law degree really teaches you how to think differently. It doesn't actually teach you the laws. I learned Georgia law studying for the bar exam. But one of the things that that stands out here is every single lawyer listening right now knows you don't go to court with witnesses who haven't been interviewed in the process prior to going to court. And that was the role of the House impeachment inquiry, to interview the witnesses to build the case. And the Democrats declined to do that. The Democrats declined to advance the story. The Democrats had declined to to ask the tough questions. The Democrats declined to even have the fight. They want the Senate Republicans to have the fight that they never bothered to have. And I don't understand what, and you know, I'm okay with John Bolton testifying. I'm kind of with Mitt Romney. This is intriguing. And I actually think it's going to blow up in the Democrats' face. And I would love to see it. It'd be great for ratings. Let's be honest. But I don't know why the Senate of the United States needs to do the job of the House Democrats when they fail to even lift a finger to try to make the fight to make it happen. I I do not understand why the Senate should be forced to call witnesses the House of Representatives never even bothered to talk to. And that is one of the keys here is when the House says they want witnesses in the Senate, they don't want the witnesses that have already testified in the House. They want new people they've never talked to. And the media doesn't raise that point enough. They don't want Fiona Hill. They don't want uh, Alexander Vindman. They want Mick Mulvaney. They want John Bolton. They want the people who had the direct knowledge, the direct contact with the president, the people the House could have called and chose not to call, and now they want the Senate to call, and they believe it's a dereliction of duty on the Senate to not call them. No, it was a dereliction of duty on the House to not call them. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There will be a recipe 
Uh, I have already logged it in uh, for Wednesday. I will be sending out a recipe. If you want the recipe, it is a cast iron uh, pizza. You, you make it in a cast iron skillet in the oven. Uh, it is a good recipe and you'll enjoy it. And the way to get it is to text the word recipe to 33777. It'll go out on Wednesday. Text the word recipe to 33777. You will get the cast iron pizza recipe on Wednesday. I've already set it, uh, so I can set it and forget it. So you actually will get the recipe. Um, I, I want to actually highlight for you, though, the, the conservative army. I want to get into Georgia news when we come back in the legislature. Uh, there's a growing sense among people in the United States House of Representatives that they are going to, uh, the, not the United States, the, the Georgia House of Representatives, that the Speaker of the House, uh, David Ralston, is going to scuttle uh, the agenda of Brian Kemp. In particular, he wants to scuttle a, a, a couple of things that the governor wants to do. One is adoption reform in the state. Uh, David Ralston seems willing to undermine that. And another is some electoral reform. The, the governor is concerned about the Kelly Leffler race, and he, the governor and the secretary of state want to require a primary for the runoff, or at least they want to require uh, that if you're going to run in this race, you need to qualify when everyone else qualifies for these races. Why? According to current law in the state, though the election is in November and it's a jungle primary where everybody piles into one race, the the actual uh, registration for the special election doesn't won't take place until the beginning of October. Now that complicates things because you gotta you gotta get the ballot ready. And early voting starts so soon thereafter. Uh, it could be cumbersome to get the ballots ready with that many people. They're expecting a large number of people for that race, so they want to go on and, and force the people, force people's hands. If you if you want to run for the special election, you got to qualify when everyone else qualifies in March. Uh, that would also, to some degree, throw it in disarray for the Democrats. Frankly, uh, Ralph Warnock is thinking of running. He is the. Uh, pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. The Democrats are trying to get him to run. Looks like he's going to do it. They want to rally around him. The governor wants to go on and clear the field. Uh, part of this as well has to do with Doug Collins. Uh, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, and, and Doug Collins were friends. Uh, Collins was a, a supporter of that leadership. And Ralston wants to undermine the governor's pick of Kelly Leffler and help Doug Collins if he can or someone else. And the, the speaker and the governor looks like maybe going to war. So you probably need to get in the conservative army, text army to 33777 so we can help the governor against the speaker. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show all over the place. Now the phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got one angry email from somebody who called and said the call screener was rude. I, I assure you I have a professional call screener and you probably couldn't get to your point. Uh, <laughs> I stand by my call screener. Uh, we've been through a lot together. In any event, you can call if, if you want to dare risk the ire of the call screener for not being able to get to your point. 877-973-7425. I, I, I want to move into some Georgia stuff. Uh, and spent a little bit of time on, on Georgia news here in this hour, uh, it, beginning with the Georgia Senate situation. Uh, 
Ted Terry has dropped out of the race. He only raised $60,000. I actually have to say I'm a little bit surprised. For those of you who don't know who Ted Terry is, and clearly not enough people knew who Ted Terry was, Ted Terry, or was, is, he's not dead, he just dropped out of the race. Ted Terry is the mayor of Clarkston, Georgia. Clark, not, uh, not not Clarksville, but Clarkston. Clarkston is in the metro Atlanta area. It's considered the most progressive city in Georgia. And he was known as the millennial mayor, which kind of, you know, aggravates me. Uh, you, you heard, you, you heard, if you heard that Chris Burns is at, he's saying he, he is technically a, a millennial. He and I, um, we're not that far apart in age. And yet I, I'm in the, I'm in the millennial period and, or I'm in the Gen X period. He's in the millennial period just because of a couple of years difference. But, uh, we have make basically the same pop culture references and, and whatnot. Uh, we, we grew up with the same stuff basically. And, uh, Ted Terry though is known as the millennial mayor, which apparently he was the first millennial elected to anything in Georgia as a mayoral seat. And oh my goodness, we got to call him the millennial mayor. Uh, he's just the mayor of Clarkston. He's also hyper progressive. He's a huge environmentalist. He is hugely into, uh, the legalized marijuana scene. He is very big into the sanctuary city scene. He's very big into government healthcare for all climate change advocacy. Um, on and on it goes. He is hyper progressive and he was on the queer eye show on Netflix. He was not one of the gay dudes. He was one of the dudes getting the makeover from the gay dudes. He, uh, and they made him, he grew a la resistance beard. Ted Terry did for those of you who don't know what a resistance beard. Apparently it's the thing where you pledge. You're not going to shave until Donald Trump is defeated. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, you're not going to shave until Donald Trump is defeated. Well, the, the queer dude, queer eye guys made Ted Terry shave or at least trim up his resistance beard. So he didn't shave it off. He gets to keep it, but he had to scale it back. And by all accounts, you should know he's a very nice guy. Uh, I have several friends of mine who uh, fundamentally disagree with him as much as I would fundamentally disagree with him, but say he's a great guy to go hang out with, go to a Braves game, grab a beer, whatever. Uh, you just will disagree on everything politically with him. He's very out there left on his politics. And he decided he would use the Stacey Abrams model of rallying the left in Georgia to get himself the nomination, and it did not work out so. He decided instead uh, to to play true believer, and he uh, distanced himself from abilities to raise massive piles of cash. Unlike Teresa Tomlinson, who has picked up now what Jason Carter's endorsement, former state senator ran against Nathan Deal, Teresa Tomlinson. Everybody's trying to rally to keep John Ossoff down. Now, here's what you need to know about John Ossoff. Uh, John Ossoff, you will recall, spent $30 million to lose to Karen Handel in a special election in Georgia 6 in 2017. He still has a lot of his major liberal connections. And the left did not go with Ted Terry, and I expected they would go with Ted Terry. Instead, they waited for Ossoff. Ossoff has got back in, and they're pouring money into his race. There is a problem. Behind the scenes, this is all David Perdue's race, and behind the scenes, there are a lot of Democrats who are convinced that John Ossoff cannot actually beat David Perdue. And they have grown fearful of the idea of having John Ossoff against David Perdue. And the problem is because, well, they want to beat David Perdue. 
And if they think that they can't beat David Perdue with John Ossoff, they got to find somebody. And meanwhile, they have massive amounts of money to come into the state. Now, again, you do need to understand here and, and follow along with me here. I hope I'm not losing you down the down the trail of all these candidates. The Democrats believe that they can beat David Perdue in Georgia. They're wrong on that. And you do need to know they're wrong. Objectively so, they are wrong. Uh, barring some sort of scandal, David Perdue is going to win re-election. The reason David Perdue is going to win re-election is because Republicans still have a turnout advantage in Georgia. And Republicans will vote for David Perdue because as much as the national media believes that David Perdue is just a stands in the shadow of Donald Trump and is not his own man, Georgia voters have established that David Perdue is his own man, has his own record, has his own agenda. And they tend to like it. Same with Kelly Leffler. As long as the Republicans don't end up in a civil war here over Leffler, and by the way, the Democrats and David Ralston together are working to build a civil war. We will get to that in just a minute. Uh, as long as the Republicans stay united, uh, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, they're going to go back to the Senate. And privately, some of the major Democratic strategists know this. Privately, even Democrats here in Georgia know this. But privately, Democrats here in Georgia also understand something else. They are going to have a hard time beating David Perdue with someone young and progressive like John Ossoff, who may be able to rally progressives in Atlanta and Savannah and the suburbs, but will turn off everyone else because he's not from around here. John Ossoff is, is not from around here, and he doesn't sound like he's from around here. Teresa Tomlinson may be an opportunist, uh, but she is from here, and people recognize she is from here, and she sounds like she's from here. She sounds like she's been a part of the Georgia community, not just the Columbus community, and she sounds like someone who is not going to scare middle-of-the-road voters. They want to find someone who can beat David Perdue, and, and Teresa Tomlinson is who they're hitching their wagons to. She's been out trying to out-progressive uh, Ted Terry for a while now, and now she's going to go back to being the reasonable businesswoman. By the way, where does this leave Sarah Riggs Amico? Has anybody in the state of Georgia seen Sarah Riggs Amico? This is a woman who who did a big splash with a big campaign ad uh, to say she's going to run. She uh, was was the lieutenant governor pick for the Democrats in 2018, ran a statewide race, came close, filed a lawsuit. It got thrown out of court. She believes that essentially she had that race stolen from her and the way that Stacey Abrams believes that the uh, governor's race was stolen from her. But nobody's seen her since. Where, where is Sarah Riggs Amico? It is amazing to me that a statewide candidate who two years ago narrowly lost a lieutenant governor's race could not be a viable contender this year. This is how bad it is for the Democrats in Georgia. And therein lies the issue overall for the Georgia Senate race for Democrats in Georgia. They don't have a good bench. That's why Ossoff has jumped in. And that's why Tomlinson is having trouble gaining traction. And that's why the Democrats are concerned about the Leffler race. They are they are moving heaven and earth to try to get Ralph Warnock to run against um, to run against Kelly Leffler. Ralph Warnock is the minister in charge of Ebenezer Baptist Church. He he is his dad was there. That was Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. He is well known in the Democratic community. He is progressive. And he will have to thread the needle carefully. The reason they want Ralph Warnock to run against Kelly Loeffler is because they think he can contrast a message of charity and compassion against a billionaire. 
They think he can rally black voters. See, ultimately, the the miscalculation of a lot of Democrats is that uh, they believe that Georgia is somehow a progressive state. And that's why Stacey Abrams did so well. She ran to the left and she could galvanize left-wing voters. That's not really it at all. The fact of the matter is Stacey Abrams fired up the crowd because she was black. And it was historic. It was a big deal. And you can't dispute it. You can't disparage it. It was a big deal for a lot of people that in Georgia, a former Confederate state, with a history of Jim Crow and racism, a statewide candidate who is black could challenge the Republicans and do so credibly. It was a historic moment. And the Democrats who are actually thinking Democrats who understand these things understand that if they want to try to get lightning in a bottle twice, they're going to have to do this. There's a problem, though. There's a problem. It's a problem Kelly Leffler and Ralph Warnock share. The silence is intentional. I want you just to think for just a minute, just to think, just to think. Neither of them are politicians. And Leffler now has surrounding her a very good political team. Warnock is going to have to surround himself with a very good political team. And there aren't a lot of good Democratic political teams in Georgia. And Ralph Warnock has been able to be political in the past, but he's always had to keep it on one side of the line because Warnock also works for a nonprofit religious organization. He didn't want to get his organization in trouble. So he's going to have to leave the pulpit to become a politician. And in leaving the pulpit to become a politician, he's going to start talking. And will the Ralph Warnock who talks and is not behind a pulpit, will his values align with the Democratic Party? Will his values align with social progressivism? Where is Ralph Warnock going to stand on on transgender issues? Where is he going to stand on alphabet gang issues? The rest of them, the LG, the B, the T, the G, the Q, the A, the whatever. Where is he going to stand on these issues? Where is he going to stand on governmental issues? How is he going to be coached? Because, you know, the Leffler team, if he actually runs against her, they're going to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to get Warnock to go down roads he may not want to go down as a, as a Baptist minister from Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. And he can speak on social justice issues. He can speak on justice issues. He can speak on all these issues. But where is he going to stand on policy? The downside for Leffler and Warnock both, and it is it is a downside they both share. As someone who's run political races, I can tell you uh, their anchor is going to be how do you talk to audiences to express authenticity without getting yourself in trouble? Because both of them are surrounded by people who, by virtue of their positions, tell them everything's hunky-dory. You know, when I got into this business, uh, Rush Limbaugh, of all people, uh, Rush told me that I needed to hire a designated, uh, we'll just say, horses behind. 
And he said that you're going to, you're going to be, when you get into entertainment, particularly into radio and TV, you're going to be surrounded by people who tell you everything you do is grand and glorious. You've done nothing wrong and, uh, everybody should love you. And the reality of the matter is that's not necessarily true. And you need someone who can be there to tell you when you've screwed up. And these are people by virtue of their positions, their clout, their fame, their money. They've been surrounded with people who tell them everything they do is great. Who is there? Who is going to be there to tell Ralph Warnock he's screwing up? Who is there to tell him that he's got to navigate some lines within the Democratic Party that he's never had to encounter before? I assure you, Leffler's smart enough. She's got a team around her now telling her these things. Warnock's going to have to have that. And the media is going to treat him like a celebrity, and they're going to lure him in and make him comfortable, and he will start making mistakes. Every time a political party tries to shake things up to help themselves, they tend to screw it up. Democrat and Republican alike. Remember the Democratic Party for years and years in Georgia kept changing the election rules to benefit themselves, and every time it wound up helping the Republicans. There are those who think that Brian Kemp picking Kelly Leffler uh, probably hurts him and might hurt her and might cost the Republicans a seat. I don't actually believe that. I think it was enough outside the outside the the uh, thinking, uh, enough outside standard lines that it shakes things up enough that people are going to have to pay attention. Now, there's a lot of polling out there that shows that the public still doesn't know who Leffler is, and she needs to hurry up and define herself before the Democrats define her. I mean, most people don't know who she is. Something like 20% of, of people in the state have an opinion on her. That leaves a lot of ground for her opponents to define her before she can define herself. She needs to get out there, and she needs to start spending real money she needs to start uh, touring the state. She can't because she's stuck in impeachment. The fact that the Democrats, while she's stuck in impeachment, haven't been able to rally around a candidate yet still speaks poorly of the Democrats. They knew it was coming. They had plenty of time, and they're trying to get around Ralph Warner. They're trying to rally around him. And the fact that they can't shut out other people from getting into this race when there's no guarantee he'll be the strong candidate, that could hurt the Democrats. By having the free, by not having the free-for-all, by not allowing the Democrats to come in, I get their reasoning. They don't want 10 candidates against Leffler. That just ensures she's going to be the pick. But by limiting the Democrats to one who's never run for office before against one who's never run for office before but is establishing herself as the incumbent with a $20 million war chest up front, that's going to hurt the Democrats. They've almost played this so carefully that they've made a mistake. I am here. I am dealing with a tech support issue, So I can't get into the AJC. And they sent me an email and I decided while I was on commercial break, I would reply. Um, I, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm, I'm trying to find the, this is, you know, just as a random aside, and, and I want to get to calls as well. The phone number is 404. I'm sorry. It's 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I rely on the AJC a lot on this program because I, I like to bring in Georgia news here since we are a, a Georgia news program. And I, I do want to expand out of the state over time, but right now we are are primarily focused on Georgia and it is it's kind of sad to see the decline of local media around the state of Georgia where increasingly I have to depend on the agency and they went through some sort of upgrade process a a uh, few weeks ago and now I, I continue to get these errors and can't get into the site so I was <laughs> I happen to know the publisher she's a friend and I, I let her know and, and have tech support that keeps emailing me so in any event let's go to Tracy and coming thanks very much for listening Tracy welcome Hey, Eric. Good morning. I just wanted to express frustration as 
I consider myself an average American, and I just get frustrated that Congress sets uh, or legislature sets and operates by very complicated majority-led rules that the average American doesn't understand, really wouldn't operate that way. And then I get frustrated that the media doesn't call out the unfairness uh, or call out the people that are crying unfairness. Whether I like the House rules or not, they were there and so and set to where Republicans couldn't call witnesses or were refused witnesses. Now, I have an average American. I think that's a stupid way to do business. If you want to right. get at the truth, then establish rules that make sense for both sides and are, quote, unquote, fair to both sides. And then I get frustrated when then you go to the Senate side and you have a Senate from a party that's not in the majority crying about the unfairness of the process. So I'm just (laughs) frustrated, and I wish Congress would just operate with common sense and uh, stop creating these procedures that don't get at the truth for anybody. Well, it, and, you know, it, it makes everybody, Tracy, listen, first, I, I appreciate it. And, and I echo what you're saying. And I can see why so many Americans have become cynical about the political process when it seems like neither side really wants to get to the truth. They just want to get to what helps their side. You know, I'm not opposed to John Bolton testifying in the Senate. You know, the, the the Clinton impeachment trial, there actually were some witnesses whose testimony was not heard on the floor of the Senate, but they were deposed uh, in, in the Senate process. And I'm not opposed to it, but I think it's ridiculous to set a precedent that the Republicans in the Senate will hear from witnesses who have not been heard first by the House. I mean, the whole purpose of the impeachment, building the impeachment articles was to develop the case and send it to the Senate and say, here's what we got. And the Democrats did, as as she was just saying, we, we, they didn't want to hear, Tracy was just saying, they didn't want to hear from Republican witnesses. They decided Republican witnesses weren't relevant. So they didn't allow the Republicans to fairly operate under the rules. And now it's gotten to the House or to the United States Senate. And what is the Democratic position here? Oh, well, we got to hear all of these witnesses that we did not want to hear in the House, we now want the Senate to do what we did not do. We now want the Senate to hear who we did not hear from. And we don't know what these people are going to say, but please do it, Senate. That's not the way to run an impeachment trial. For all of the talk about the president uh, disparaging precedent and the president undermining people, for all of that, The reality is that the Democrats themselves have been disruptive of the process, disruptive of precedent, and disrespectful of precedent and process. And that really does actually matter. It matters a great deal that they, too, have done what they accuse the Republicans of doing. It's it's a huge deal, and it's one we should not dismiss. And yet it's just partisan gamesmanship on both sides right now. I want to read you a story real quick. Uh, it wasn't on the show rundown. This show, we're flexible. Uh, on Friday evening, a U.S. House Representatives Committee released H.R. 5666. Ooh, 666. An authorization act for NASA. Such bills are not required for an agency to function, and they do not directly provide funding. That comes from appropriations committees, but they provide a sense of Congress. 
The big picture takeaway from the bipartisan rejection is that it rejects the Artemis program put forth by the Trump White House, which establishes the moon as a cornerstone of human exploration for the next decade or two and as a place for NASA astronauts to learn the skills needed to go to Mars. Instead, they essentially want to hand everything over to Boeing. Uh, the House Authorization Act, which will now be considered in committee before going before the full House, rolls a lot of uh, things back. It proposes a human landing system, which will take astronauts from lunar orbit, offers prime examples. It states the U.S. will retain full ownership of the human landing system. The lunar plan should utilize the Orion vehicle. The gateway to Mars should not be required for the conduct of human lunar landing missions. The net effect of this is to shut down all potential competition and cost savings for the lunar lander. It is particularly telling that there's only one company, Boeing, that has proposed building an integrated lunar lander, has the contract for the exploration upper stage, and is building core stages for the space launch system rocket. Boeing has also tried to minimize use of the gateway. Essentially, this is a, a Boeing-backed bill to give Boeing the, uh, the core pieces of the, um, uh, of the moon missions and the Mars missions. Now, this comes at a time that Boeing is still reeling from the 737 uh, MAX. Uh, they can't get it back in the air. They just launched the 777 uh, new model. It's having some problems. Uh, Boeing is a company that got governed by profit centers instead of by designers and engineers. And the result is the whole thing's gone kablooey. Very much like Microsoft in the uh, Balmer days where it was the, the marketers and the bean counters who took over the company and not the innovators, designers, and engineers. And uh, Microsoft kind of collapsed and, and ha had setbacks. So the same thing now happening with Boeing. And they have now finally fired their CEO, getting a new CEO, but the company is just rife with corruption. The Export-Import Bank, for example, in Washington, D.C., uh, gives subsidized loans to American companies to compete on the world stage, solely exists these days to keep Boeing in business, to be able to uh, underwrite loans and, and business deals for the aircraft company selling planes abroad. It is not a good look for Boeing to essentially be, at this point, unable to compete in free enterprise. And by the way, the 737 outside of the MAX, the 737 is the most popular plane in the world. And if Boeing hadn't gotten greedy, it probably could have maintained that. The 777 is one of the best planes on planet Earth. The 787, I haven't been on a 787. I want to be on a 787. A lot of my friends have ridden the 787 and say it's a remarkable airplane. Personally, I want a Gulfstream, but nonetheless, uh, maybe one day we'll get there with NetJets or something. In any event, uh, Boeing now exists on corporate welfare, and that is a, a real problem. And now they're trying to scuttle our moon landing and, and lunar missions solely for waste, fraud, and abusive purposes, it appears. Uh, and that would be unfortunate. You know, the NASA, uh, under... Donald Trump has done a very good job of using the free market, leveraging the free market, and trying to uh, let everybody compete and in that competition drive down costs, and it has worked. And the fact that Boeing now wants to scuttle that and get corporate welfare is a problem. There are other problems out there. You know who has a problem? Uh, Pete Buttigieg has a problem. Buttigieg went on... Uh, Fox News did a town hall, encountered a pro-life Democrat. This is making waves, and it ties into something I said on Friday night on, on HBO. Uh, listen to Buttigieg encountering this voter. I support the position of my party 
that this kind of medical care needs to be available to everyone. Uh, and I support the Roe versus Wade framework uh, that holds that early in pregnancy there are very few restrictions and late in pregnancy there are very few exceptions. And again, the best I can offer is that we may disagree on that very important issue uh, and hopefully we will be able to partner on other issues. So what do you, what do you say to Democrats who are pro-life, and there are obviously millions of them as well, what do you say to them on an issue of such deep conscience that they should overlook this particular issue and look at the whole sum of views or go find another party? Look, I've never encountered a politician or, or frankly, another person that I agreed with 100 percent of the time. And even on very important things, we may sometimes disagree. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is what I believe. And people I care about and respect view it differently. Uh, but this is something I believe is so important, especially because I'm never going to have to make that decision. And so uh, I may have my views, but I cannot imagine that uh, a decision that a woman confronts is going to ever be better, medically or morally, because it's being dictated by any government official. And that's just where I am on the issue. What we have here is a Democratic Party that is increasingly upper-income white and detached from where America is on a lot of these issues. Uh, contrast Pete Buttigieg with Andrew Yang, who at this point really isn't a contender, but should be considered a contender. Listen to Andrew Yang. So my administration will be able to draw people in from both sides of the aisle. I'm not ideological. I'm very data-driven and solutions-oriented, and people sense that. Um, one thing I think Democrats should do, I think we should go on Fox News and talk to American people. Because how can you win an election and bring the country together if you literally won't talk to 40 or 50% of the population? said, we'd like to host a DNC debate. And to me, if you're the DNC, you jump at that. You're like, let me show my candidates and people who generally watch Fox News. But the DNC turned it down. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> So Yang wants the Democrats to go on Fox News and interact with Fox News voters. And meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg is essentially telling a pro-life Democratic woman that there is no place for her in the Democratic Party. Think about that juxtaposition. Very much like Pete Buttigieg when it comes to religious issues. You know, Buttigieg loves to throw scripture in the face of, of Republicans, just like the devil liked to throw scripture in the face of Jesus in the desert. Uh, Buttigieg loves to do that. Now, he's an Episcopalian, so he, he gets a lot wrong, and we should be sympathetic there. But nonetheless, uh, he does get a lot wrong. But he loves to toss scripture in people's faces. And Buttigieg tries to portray himself as some sort of open-minded millennial, but he's really not. He, he's a rather dogmatic individual. And the Democratic Party itself is becoming a very dogmatic party. You know, what's really amazing here, in all honesty, if the president of the United States would stay off Twitter, you know his polling always goes up when the president stays off Twitter? 
His polling's gone back up now. It's kind of funny. Um, the number of people who want him removed from office has there's been a very slight uptick, but the president himself, his popularity, there's also been a slight uptick there as well. He stays off Twitter, popularity goes up. Uh, the economy is booming. By all signs, the country is headed in the right direction. People think the country's headed in the right direction. It's just the president's demeanor turns people off. And meanwhile, you've got a Democratic Party that can't help but continuing to alienate the American public, telling people they're not welcome in the Democratic Party. I made this point on Bill Maher's show on HBO on Friday night. You are more likely to encounter a Republican who supports gay marriage and abortion than you are to support a Democrat who opposes gay marriage and supports life. For all of the talk about the Republican Party being into small tents, there are way there's way more intellectual diversity on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. Now, when you get to down to the Democratic base, in fact, there actually is a lot of diversity. Uh, black and Hispanic voters in this country are culturally some of the most conservative people. And they actually align fairly well with conservatives who vote Republican, uh, but they believe the Republican Party is not welcome to them. They they believe the media hype about the Republican Party being the party of racists. They have gotten into the habit for cultural and historic reasons voting for the Democratic Party, and increasingly the Democratic Party is leaving these people behind. I still think a sea change is coming inevitably in this country when it comes to party. And I don't know that it'll be Donald Trump. I don't know that it'll be the Republican after Donald Trump. But but I just – the country still socially remains rather conservative despite all of the media hype. When you delve into the views of Hispanic voters, for example, Hispanic voters are the, the most rapidly increasing pool of voters in the country, and they are also the most pro-life and here you have a Democratic candidate telling them they're not welcome in the Democratic Party because they actually believe all life is sacred. You've got a lot of people who have fled countries to come to this country, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and the Democratic Party wants to embrace the very policies that those people fled from. There is a misconception on the right, and it is spread from various immigration groups, that the people fleeing these South and Central American countries coming to this country want us then to become like the countries they fled. And they produce statistical sampling that shows it. And, you know, when you actually delve into the data and you have the audacity to talk to these people, do you know what you find? An immigrant from Central and South America is more free market than your average American citizen, including Republicans. When you delve into the data on, on the immigrants, flee, illegal immigrants even, fleeing to this country, it turns out they're more in favor of capitalism and the free market than your average American because they fled the totalitarian and the socialist and the failed regimes, and they want what America stands for, the land of the free and the home of the brave. It is American citizens. You know, for example, uh, in Texas, all, all these people are like, oh, in Texas, we're, we've got so many liberals moving into the state. The state's changing. Do you know that the people who are moving to Texas tend to be more uh, more fans of Texas than the average Texan? In Dallas County, Texas, the Fort Worth, Dallas area, the people who are moving left are the native Texans. It's the immigrants into the state of Texas who are still the diehard conservatives who are moving, they hope, to the state of Texas that is Texas. Stuff like that matters demographically. And yet you've got a closing of the mind on the Democratic Party side, and the media can't pay attention to the closing of the mind on the Democratic side because the media is so focused on what they think is a closing of the mind on the on the Republican side. 
the media is fundamentally convinced of the the bigotry and closed-mindedness of Republicans on a host of social issues, and it turns out you're more likely to find Republicans who disagree with each other on these issues than the Democratic side, where you're canceled. You're not allowed to be in the Democratic Party. And, he, you know, I, I got to say to his credit on HBO on Friday night, I pointed that out and even Bill Maher had to agree with it, uh, that there is a lot of intellectual diversity on the right these days. There actually is a, on the left, for example. Yeah, there's really no debate on the president. On the right, you do still have these conversations about the president. And even among a lot of people who support the president, they're willing to call the president out on certain issues. I'm not talking about the Paula Whites of the world and the 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 Robert Jeffries and, and some of the Fox News talk show folks. Uh, but your average Republican is willing to say the president did something that he shouldn't have done on the democratic side it's just universally bad and you're not allowed to say anything nice about the president or you get excoriated and the democrats are going to have a problem with this long term they're going to have a problem with it because as they become the rich white party of progressive secular atheists hostile to people of faith the base of the democratic party still loves jesus and goes to church They may not be Republican because they're minorities in a country that tells them that the Republican Party is hostile to them, but at some point they're going to go looking for another party. Many of them are headed to the Republican Party, and when they get there, they're like, wait a second, I thought you guys, this was a meeting of the Klan, and it turns out, no, it's actually a very diverse group of people. Remember, it was the Tea Party Republicans who got Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and Mia Love, and and previously it supported Bobby Jindal against the Republican establishment in Louisiana. And Tim Scott, let's not forget Tim Scott. And Alan West and, and you name it. The Republican Party has way more diversity than the media wants to tell people. And as these base Democratic voters hear people like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden and others come out and say that that transgenderism is the civil rights issue of the day. That's what Joe Biden said this weekend. We need to move heaven and earth to protect transgender people. It's the civil rights issue of the day. And some of these people are thinking, wait a second, what about us? What about our civil rights? You people have been telling us the president runs concentration camps and it turns out not to be true. The awakening of the immigrant community and the minority community in the United States is going to be something to behold. And while I think the Republicans could be held accountable, man, I think the leadership of the Democratic Party is in for a rude awakening when people realize what that party is becoming. The party of rich white atheists isn't going to go over very well with the majority of Americans who still do go to church and love Jesus. Hello, welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, well, it's too late to take a call. I I, I want to spend a moment uh, going back to the president at the March for Life. It was on Friday, and of course, I wasn't here. Thanks, by the way, to Alan Sanders for filling in for me on Friday. I was in L.A. Uh, for Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO and that was the March for Life Day, and, and I did monitor the situation, and I thought it was very notable that instead of the March for Life crowd going to the president, the president came to them. And I do think that uh, the media, which tries to downplay, and by the way, the media did downplay the March for Life still, even with the president there giving it more exposure, the media downplayed the March for Life as they always do. Now, my daughter, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm proud of my kid. Uh, we, I've mentioned, I live in Macon and there was a March for life rally in Macon and she went to it and she had a lot of fun, uh, enjoyed doing it and enjoyed it. Turned out our, the speaker turned out to be our pastor from our church. Uh, and she enjoyed the experience. Someone, by the way, in the crowd, uh, was marching with, a, um, we support life and Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> I wish I knew who was holding that sign. She sent me that picture and I fell out laughing. Uh, 
<laughs> but, you know, it, it is it is notable that the president of the United States went to talk to these people and engaged with them on their turf. And he's the first president of the United States to ever do that. And I think that matters and it matters for his reelection. It matters because it puts the spotlight on them. And you, you need to understand a data point the media doesn't pay attention to. The media has so bought into this narrative of all evangelicals are for the president that they've ignored one of the key, key points. The more likely someone is to go to church on the right, the less likely they are to like the president. The more often one goes to church, the more likely one is to be skeptical of the president. There is this entire media narrative that it is Christian evangelicals who have sold out. And there are a lot of prominent evangelicals who on a daily basis beclown themselves in defense of this president. Paula White, who is nothing more than a heretic, and let's be honest here, Paula White is a prosperity gospel, and the prosperity gospel is a heresy. Uh, God does not want you healthy, wealthy, and wise. God wants you to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Uh, Catechism 101. Uh, and Paula White, over the, the weekend, a video came out of Paula White saying that she wanted all satanic pregnancies to be mis carried. What the hell is a satanic pregnancy? I have no idea. Now she says she was speaking a metaphor. That's her excuse. God help us. There are a bunch of people who are defining themselves as evangelical to get a seat at the president's table, and it hurts evangelicalism. It hurts the church. It hurts the Christian mission in this country. But I also have to tell you that I hear all the time people saying, oh, oh these evangelicals support the president. They're going to hurt the mission of the church. Oh, they're going to hurt the church. Uh, as if the Holy Spirit can't do anything. Uh, you, you, people want to want to take God out of the equation here. But the president does have to do something to get these people on board. Because the president is in November going to need every vote he can get. Now, I can predict to you exactly. In fact, Charlie, we should flag this moment here as I make this prediction. Because I can tell you exactly what's going to happen this year. No one's going to believe any polls that show the president behind, and they'll say 2016, the polling was wrong. The polling was actually right in 2016. It was the Electoral College that was the problem for the Democrats. And so what the media is going to do is the media is going to take New York and California out of the polls, and the media is going to look at battleground states. The media is going to look at, at Arizona and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan and Iowa and states like that. And the people are still going to dismiss it all. And... If the race is close and the president wins, the media and the Democrats are going to say, well, he probably stole it again, and they're going to discredit it again. If the president doesn't win, you're going to have a bunch of the president supporters blame the media and the Democrats and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Chinese and everyone else. Neither side is going to be willing to take the loss, whoever loses. In the middle of this, there will come a reckoning on the evangelical side of the people who decided that it was more important to hump the president's leg than to worry about his soul. I got to tell you, the, the, the number of people who just want to be close to the president and tell him flattery things, I, I, y'all, I've, unlike most of you, I've met this president multiple times. I've had multiple phone calls. He has called me at home. He's called me on my cell phone. Uh, I, I've been up to New York City before he became president and interviewed him for over an hour. I hung out with him. Uh, I can tell you this, everyone in that position likes to have people around them who tell them what they want to hear. Everybody does. But he is also mature enough as an individual to understand he needs people to tell him hard truths. 
and they he needs people to tell him when things not going well. He needs people to tell him when he screwed up, and he understands these things. And he may not like it, but he handles it, and he seeks out people who aren't willing to kiss his butt. And these people don't seem to understand it. They 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 really don't. And they're hurting the entire evangelical cause when they go on TV and say stupid things in defense of the president's bad behavior as opposed to calling him out. At the same time, the media in this country fundamentally misunderstands evangelicalism. They fundamentally misunderstand Christianity in large part because they don't even go to church. They, they don't understand the basics of it. And the rest of us have to spend our time setting the record straight. That the president went to the March for Life instead of having its leaders come to him was a really big deal and shows the president is in this to win this in November and does want to expand his base of support.